Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Christopher R. Matthews, a social scientist and epistemologist who specializes in the use of immersive research to understand ideas, people, and society. Chris is the author of Doing Immersive Research, Volume 1, Using Social Science to Understand the Human World, and runs an impressive website with hours of content on methods, theory, and navigating academia. Chris introduces us to the work of Nick Crossley and reflects on the value of Crossley's comprehensive synthesis of social theory centered around the body. Chris also discusses his own approach to theory and his goals in doing research. Hi, Chris. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. So we are here today to talk about Nick Crossley, which is exciting for me. This is the sociologist that I first found in grad school. Um, but I'm, I'm just curious, if, could you get us going by giving us a short introduction to who he is or maybe what type of stuff he's known for? Yes. Yeah, so I think we've, we've had a conversation offline, actually, about my uh, disregard for social theorists as theorists. I don't really know too much about him, to be honest. Um, he's at Manchester. Um, I've actually contacted him because I contacted him to say, look, I've got some questions. I'm a bit stuck with your book. And he, and he didn't get back to me. It's fair enough. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure he's much busier than speaking to me. But he's at Manchester, a sociologist, but I think we'd probably call him a, a social philosopher. The, the books that I know him for, and I think most people know him for, are, um, oh gosh, I can't remember his other book, Sociology in the Body or something. I'll, I'll, I'll dig that out um, and send it to you so you can maybe put that into it. But he, he, that's his his thing was this this book about the body. It's a fantastic book, and I came across that in my PhD, which was two thousand eight to two thousand twelve, and then more recently his book on intersubjectivity, which is what we're going to kind of mainly focus on today. Um, his his work, I think, when we when I characterise it, is he, he's the most well read contemporary theorist that I come across for sure. Um, I can't decide whether he's an essayist, a social theorist, a social philosopher, or I've also been wondering if he's the, the social theorist theorist as well. I've been kind of thinking about that idea a little bit. Because when I've been trying to do social theory, which is what I'm currently trying to do based on his work to develop some of it, I'm thinking, like, the more I think of myself as doing theory, I don't want to say I'm a social theorist because it sounds too grandiose, but I'm doing social theory. That's that's what I'm literally doing at the minute. The more I'm being drawn to his way of working in some respects. But then also, as I've said, he's also, he might be an essayist. And I'm, I'm looking at this book in the subject. What, do you, what do you mean by that? Because I think that's yeah. important. Because you're making this distinction. Because one of the things I find interesting about the way that you see social theory or the conversations that you have, especially on your Twitter account, which I recommend people listening check it out because um, you've got some great content on there. You are very specific with the words that you choose, right? And even in our conversation offline where I was saying, here's what this podcast is doing, you would often ask questions and say, well, here's what I mean by theory. Here's what I mean by being inspired. So what do you mean by essayist? How is that different? I'm looking at this book now. I've got it next to me. And it's how many pages? 200-odd pages. Yeah, but it's an essay. It really is an essay. And what I mean by an essay is when I get my students to demonstrate their their knowledge, right? I always say to them, okay, you, your job now is to show off. You're, you're studying with me for a whole year and you have to show off that you've read 50, 60, 70, 80 papers. You've got to show it me. And in your essay, you've got to pack it in. You've got to demonstrate you really know this stuff. And I don't really want to hear what you think or what your big brainy kind of ideas are until the very, very end when you've shown me 
that you know this, that you can legitimately have a conversation as, a, as an equal with me about these ideas. And that's a really good essay for me. And then when I read a social theorist, um, I don't get that sense. I get that sense that Bourdieu is writing because he's explaining the world and he's, he's explaining it in his way and Foucault's doing the same and insert social theorist here. And there's almost a... There's an arrogance to the way that social theorists have to write. There's, there's a... I'm explaining the world here, right? That's, that, that's what they're doing. And I'm, I'm going to front up to that and I'm going to do it. It's no surprise to me that a lot of these social theorists are dudes, right? White dudes. And they're, and they're and often from some privileged backgrounds as well. Um, Crossley doesn't come across like that. It comes across like he's going to tell you loads of stuff about all of the things that he's read and he's going to reinterpret it a bit and he's going to pull it together a bit. But also he's not really going to do his own theory. It's it's hard to explain. There's a there's a there's a humbleness, and I hate that word because no one ever uses the word humble correctly, especially on Twitter. But there's a humbleness to his writing where he sticks to what other people say. And I almost I almost want him to not do that. I want him to be like, listen, I know all this shit. I really get this. Here's what this all means when we pull this together. Here's what you lot should go and do. And he doesn't do that. And that's probably a critique of his work. Yeah, which is such, thinking of the people that you already mentioned, someone like Foucault, Foucault or Bourdieu, their project, they specifically don't mention other theorists that are working, <laughs> yeah. right, at, in the same type of, in the same time period, yeah. in the same country, working on the same type of stuff. They're not even going to mention these other names. Crossley, and we'll talk about why this is so valuable, and I want to think about when you first found his book and why it was useful when you read it, but he's going to mention, like you're saying, every single person working in the area, right? And if, I think if he misses someone, it's not intentional, and he would probably apologize and go back and add that person when they release the newest edition, which I, th- I think the book you mentioned has like one or two editions already. But so why was it when you first found this book, which you're describing, I like the way you're describing it, almost like this incredibly comprehensive essay, what drew you to it or why, why was it so useful to you? Okay, so just for clarity then, um, the, the first book that I was drawn to, which I stumbled over earlier, is The Social Body, Habit, Identity, Desire. So let's, let's quickly deal with that, because that's the book that, that kind of got me into this. And I, my PhD was all about, well, it's about boxing, so it kind of by default has to be about bodies, right? Um, and, it, and, it, and it does a real good job of explaining social theory about the body. So, so there's where I was kind of drawn to that. And I read that multiple times and came back to it when I was re-theorising for the second volume of my book about doing immersive research. So slight plug in there, the first volume's out, you can find that on my website. Um, but where, what, what he talks about there in a few places is this idea of intersubjectivity, which is an idea that I'd come across you know, a variety of ways, um, especially within the work of Robert Proust, which is connected to Bloomer's work, which I write about a lot in the first volume. But it drew me, the the, the body book, Nick Crossley's body book, to Nick Crossley's Intersubjectivity book. So the body book is 2001. The Intersubjectivity book is 2000 and, sorry, 1996. So what drew me to it? Um, he, as we said, he covers a lot of authors. But what he's doing is he's... he's He's, he's pulling them together to be able to discuss an academic idea. The first book, The Body, Embodiment, 
And he doesn't go, right, Bourdieu says this about the body. He he pulls in with Merleau-Ponty and, and Elias and whoever else, Foucault and everyone else, and Goffman and and, 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 and. So you get this real good understanding of the body, but then he does the same with intersubjectivity. And I, as I've said already, I'm not, I'm not bothered about Bourdieu. I'm not bothered about Elias. I don't care for these people. What I care for is I think of them as tools. I think of their theory, their ideas as tools. I think of understanding them as a tool to understand their theory. I care for the person, except for I need to know something about Foucault because it probably tells me something about why, the way he writes, the way he writes about what he writes. And I need, so I need to know a bit of interest, but it's, it's, it, it, when, what I tend to find is that people get hung up on that person, on that theory and turn it into their pet theory, which is an idea from volume one that I've talked to you about. So Crossley doesn't do that. You never get a sense that Crossley is drawn to any of these ideas in a way which is more than how can they help him understand the social world better, right? So he sees it as a tool. And, and you know, I use the analogy of, of, of a builder using a hammer. Well, if, if it's now that he needs to chop some wood, he doesn't use a hammer anymore, so he, he uses a saw. And that, that's the same for me in terms of understanding the social world. And when I move into trying to really grasp what this intersubjectivity stuff is, or stuff is that I talk about in Volume 1 in quite a superficial way, because Volume 1 is about getting people started in research, but Volume 2 and Volume 3 is about my process and going a bit more deeper... I had to get deeper into, into subjectivity, and he does that so well. And he basically pulls, he, his focus is not on a theorist, it's on the idea. And he pulls across all of the, <laughs> almost all of the social theory that you can possibly imagine and pulls it together. It sounds like, I'm going to say, to bring forth a theory of intersubjectivity, he doesn't, because he does the essay part of it. So he gives this kind of great overarching understanding which is then a springboard, which I'm seeing as a springboard from where I can try and hopefully build up a little bit further. Um, so I'm drawn to him for a variety of reasons. I think he's a social theorist theorist. Um, I think he could go further, but I, I'm very attracted to the way in which he doesn't get bogged down in one theorist, but can see how these ideas from this person can line up here with another person. And I think and by by social theorist theorist you mean someone who's theorizing what social the connection between social theorists and no social no theory, sorry or I mean, theorizing social theory yeah what do you mean by that yeah I mean someone who's trying to do social theory will like him yeah. as a social theorist I see, oh so okay, I see like, so uh, like you know the, the box like the boxer's boxer right the person exactly the general audience doesn't like that boxer finds him boring someone who appreciates boxing sees the technique. Yeah. yeah. So while everyone else is faffing around with Bourdieu and Foucault again, I would I, I don't want to be there. I get that. Like I I, I get it. Right. Th those ideas are not interesting to me anymore. Not that not that they aren't fantastic, but why would I be stuck on one or two when I can go deeper and get into all of them? Now that that also means. I want to do that, and I've constructed a career in which allows me to do that. I'm not bothered about the amount of publications I make. I just want to make one, two good ones. Crossley's done that, and he helps me, one, cut a few corners, because it helps me kind of, like, not have to go and try and read Husserl originally from the start with no help, because I haven't got a classical training in sociology, right? I, I did sports sociology, uh, and, like, so uh, undergrad has some modules, 
um, and then really picked it up in my PhD. So I don't have a kind of like theoretical background that I can draw on. I have to, I have to get some legs up, and Crossley does that for me. Um, and like I say, he 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 doesn't fixate on any one theory. And that I mean, I just that's one of my biggest problems with academia is people have their pet theories. Right? I, I don't want to keep going on about it because I sound like a broken record, but that that kills me. That does thinking pragmatically. Right. You read a, You read a book like this, which I agree I, I found in grad school too incredibly useful for me because it, this the, the breadth of what he's engaging with the way he's the example of what a lit review can do. Right. Yeah. Bringing together ideas and showing here's what here's how you can put these people in conversation. Here's the value of doing so. But you reading this, not having a background in social theory, not having a background in philosophy, which is probably really yeah. more important for what he's doing. How important how much effort do you put into tracking down the people that he's talking about and going back and reading, right? You brought up Husserl. Is it important to go back and read someone like that? I couldn't take Crossley and build from there, and I don't think anyone else could. I think that they would they would be open to making too many mistakes and wouldn't understand it properly. So everyone's different, right? And some people with a better background than me would be like, would see the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that Crossley's building and, and match them up with him as he's going. I couldn't do that. I couldn't follow along. Um, I've, I've read this book four times straight through, like pretty much cover to cover and started again. It's, it's been a, a, a bane of my life. But at the same time, I have fully read um, Schutz's work, which he builds on. I mean, I've, I've read Merleau-Ponty before. Elias, Foucault, Bourdieu, I'm happy with already because I've done a bit of reading there. Husserl, I went to and then found, and this is why it was quite useful, um, Husserl was a start point for a lot of this sort of phenomenological philosophy and social, so, social, socially kind of minded phenomenology. Um, but a lot of it is like it's thick to get into but also oh, it's, not it's, necess- inc- it's incredibly i found yeah. it incredibly difficult I'm, i had a, I had a go and i pulled out some bits but i was like okay i'm not actually getting much from this and actually i can i can hit so each each bit each theorist and is is different in the fact of do i really need to read that i don't think i don't think i needed to i got the ideas but then when he got into um gilbert ryle especially in the body book, and he does in this a bit, but mainly in the body book, it lost me completely. I was fine with the Husserl stuff, really. I kind of got it. I mean, I had read some Heidegger and stuff even when I was younger, so I kind of got some of that. But when he's going to Gilbert Ryle, I was like, my mind was just completely blown. I was like, this doesn't make any sense to me. So I read Gilbert Ryle's concept of mind a few times as well. So I guess the answer to the question is you've got, I think you have to fill in the gaps, but the gaps are specific to you. Um... Again, I'm, and specific to the research that you, so the research yeah. you're doing guides. So he's providing this big roadmap yeah. of all how theory can engage with the body and these concepts of inner subjectivity, and then you can find the spots to go to actually yeah. track down and trace. Okay, where, where you need to for you, but also for where it's useful. So um, Schutz's work is great to read. It's like it's it's, it's 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 brilliant to read, and it's really good for kind of getting some of the ontological, epistemological start points for social theory. So I've I've really enjoyed that, and actually, um, if I didn't do that, I wouldn't have understood the Crossley book as well, and I wouldn't have really made some of my kind of philosophical positions a bit more robust that he doesn't touch on. So in reading the, in him giving me the leg up to go to Gilbert Ryle and and Schutz, I've I've developed beyond his book. So yeah, it, it's very specific to who you are and what you need to do, but also you know. 
am I going to spend ages reading Sartre? No. Have I read Sartre? Yes. But have I been targeted with it? Yes, definitely. And where where Sartre, especially when he's talking about consciousness, um, where I think he does a reasonable job um, and a useful job, because I'm I'm always I'm not bothered about philosophy. I'm, I'm bothered about philosophy that helps with my research. Uh, and a lot of Sartre's work is not that. But where he's talking about consciousness, especially because I focus a lot on ontology, that's been really useful as well. I'd actually found Sartre before I went into this book um, and I'd found it useful from the reading which took me to this, which was about the emotions. So I was reading a lot of uh, Norman Denzin's work as well. So there's so many overlaps between all this stuff as well. And, and the emotions is an intersubjective accomplishment and all that sort of stuff, which we may talk about. So the 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 the, the process is, 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 is long-term, recursive, circular and the further I've gone down it, the more Crossley's made sense, has helped other people make sense, and then when I've read them, it's made Crossley make more sense again. It's, it's, it's that kind of process, I think. So you've mentioned your research a few times. Let's, let's talk a little bit about your research and think about how that can help us understand some of those concepts that you took from Crossley and how you built and how you made use of that, the books and his ideas. You were already starting to research boxing before you found this book, is that right? You already knew what you yeah. were do, what you were going to be writing. Okay, so that guided your interest into studying things like the body and inner subjectivity. Yes. So let let me give you an example of the timeline, and also then project what I'm trying to achieve. So, it yeah, I think so. PhD two thousand and eight finished a very early two thousand twelve. And I hate my thesis. I absolutely hate it. It got a job done. I say this in volume one of the book. Like a, a PhD is it's pass or fail, right? It's just got to be good enough. And I hate mine. <laughs> and I remember kind of people downloading it. I was like, don't download it. This is spelling mistakes everywhere. It's just so bad. And I retheorized the whole thing for every single one of my publications since. Barely used anything. A little bit of the methodology. It was one place where, with hindsight, I was actually quite on it. And then that process of re-theorizing everything got me my papers and I actually got a book contract in 2012 um, which volume one of the book which came out early this year where are we now 2021 that's the book like contract in 2012 and that book has come out in 2021 actually that even wasn't even the book it's the one that I'm writing now which is the second volume the first volume started to appear when I was pulling this book together so the book although it's three volumes now, was basically my PhD research plus other research that I've done since with Alex Channon and, and other people, like documenting a year of research. That was Sorry, a year, a decade of research. That was the thing. And as you know, in a monograph, you can do much more than just in a small paper, say small paper, 8,000-word paper. Um, you, can, you can pull all those ideas together and you can... You can the individual contributions can be bigger than the sum of its parts... That was the idea, and that's what will happen. Um, and what I do in volume one is outline the basic assumptions which this thing is built on. And one of the basic assumptions is into subjectivity, but read through the lens of Robert Proust, which is a relatively simple understanding of intersubjectivity, which we should talk about, really. We should explain what that means. But Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but what what the project then now is, is re-theorizing again the whole lot of all that work that I've done, um, to understand, I, I, and this sounds quite 
grandiose and I kind of only just realised I was doing this. But to understand something about the human condition and society, that's what I'm trying to do. And it, it's, I'm, you know, happy to put myself out there, but it has taken me a while to figure out that's what I'm trying to do. And intersubjectivity is the thing which is pulling that together. And the reason I'm doing that is because I think there's something in it which means we can do two things. One, we can really explain something and talk to something that's happening in boxing gyms. It doesn't matter about boxing, it's happening in subcultures. And two, I find that it is able to be, it's able to refine theory, which means we can get rid of some baggage. One of my big problems is baggage in social theory. And okay, what so, I, so there's a lot of there's a lot with both of those points. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so let's wait, let's start with the first point. One of the questions I have with the first point is how closely is this project tied to the empirical research that you were doing, right? Because that's one of the things that's different about what we do as sociologists. How closely are your ideas tied to that research that you were doing yeah, in the boxing gym, or tied. what you continue? Okay, yeah, a, a, across the board, start to finish, two way interchange all the time. I have no, I have no interest in. Although I really enjoy it, I have no interest in doing abstract theory. It's all okay. tied in, and I can't, I can't think with theory as effectively if I think with it outside of data. So, while at the moment I'm, I'm fully Alice down the rabbit hole of doing theory. Every now and then, I just pop back up to check. You know, this does still fit with those broad ideas, and it, and when I. The book, the book's in some respects written. Um, I had to, I, I have to, I have to redo it as a unit. But when I do, it will be the main thing is to just to pull that theoretical thread through everything, um, which will help explain why the theoretical stuff that I'm doing has a point and is pragmatic and useful. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit more about? What, were, what you were even doing in the boxing gym or what you were trying to explore in the gym. And then after that, I want to uh, think a little bit about what you mean by baggage, because that's yeah. the other big point. And then we should spend some time thinking about what this concept we've been kind of dancing around of intersubjectivity <laughs> yeah, actually idea, yeah. is and why, <laughs> why it's so useful in the gym. But let, let's start with what were you actually even doing in the boxing gym? Okay, so the PhD was, and it's funny because this is now what the point of the book is as well, but my, all of my yeah, papers. And again, you're telling people don't download the PhD. Wait for all, <laughs> yeah. download all other stuff. There's plenty don't of don't read what happened there. Plenty <laughs> of papers which are way better than my PhD yeah. on my website. They're all there to be able to to be got hold of. But the PhD was to understand why people enjoy violence, right? Um, a, a, one of the areas in sociology of work, sociology of sport, that there was so much research on in the 80s and 90s that it kind of just kind of got left. Um, like we get that, we know what violence in sport is. It's about money. So the kind of Marxist critique of political economy, get paid, so you sacrifice your body, punch people in the face more. And it's something about masculinity. So we've got like Kevin Young's work and then Mesner's work and yeah. Sabo and yeah, the, he, the, my, the body as a, we- the body the body as a, a weapon, weapon, right? Hughes and, and that's Coakley the, yeah. and all the rest of it. And yeah. my, my old prof, Joe McGuire's work kind of touches on some of this stuff as well. So, but what we still didn't have, I would still argue to this day, is a more an adequate understanding, sorry, more adequate understanding of the fact that there's one bit missing to that, that it's loads of fun, um, which is back to the kind of Elias and Dunning quest for excitement. Joe Maguire did some work in 92, which took that and made it quest for excitement significance. I'm certainly not a figurational sociologist by any stretch of the imagination, although I'm pretty, no, 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 all that stuff. But those ideas, I think, are the one of the 
biggest, sorry, one of the one of the areas which needs fleshing out in more detail to be able to situate it um, against those more traditional sociological topics of masculinity and money, right? Sociology doesn't, more so, but doesn't touch on like, oh, just, it's fun, right? Like, um, that would be left for, to other people, right? Um, the kind of sporting zealots or, or the psychologists or whatever. So that was that. So I was trying to explain that. And then a lot of my papers are focused on the underpinning of that idea. And I never actually really wrote about that actual, I, I call it the thrill of the fight, you know, obvious kind of statement connected to boxing. Um, I never really wrote about it until, although it's always an under, undergoing theme, and if you look at some of the papers, you hear these, one of the, one of the, one of the papers is about the male preserve and domination of men in certain spaces, and, and one of the ideas is... Um, channeling the beast quote unquote like this is something that someone said to me that here i get to channel the beast and it's like this, this nonsense about letting your kind of like inner manhood fly this like organic like testosterone filled thing and then when you actually probe it it's like yeah it's just having loads of fun punching each other like that that's what they're actually kind of talking about but but because they're lads they can't go in and say yeah just have loads of fun connecting and learning new technique it's like yeah channel the beast but it's, so it's underlying in quite a lot of my papers, but I never really published about it until I wrote a paper with Prof. Maguire, Prof. Maguire in 2019, a, a book chapter. First thing we ever did together, I never worked with him like academically. We, we kept in touch, but I never worked with him academically after my PhD. And then we wrote a paper which was about that idea. And it was like, here's sports violence. There's one chunk of research that says it's money there's one that says it's about masculinity neither both are important necessary but insufficient and what we need to say is there's a thrill of the thrill of the fight in here as well and i had some amazing i had such good data about it because i spent so much time in the ring around the ring and i loved it so much myself my enjoyment of it meant it was quite easy for me to get the enjoyment from other people and if you don't enjoy getting punched in the face it's hard for you to have do an interview with someone and for them to know that if they tell you they like punching people in the face, that that's going to be acceptable. Because most people, that's not something that you can say. But I'm like, I've just been getting punched in the face by this guy and he can tell I love it. So it's, so we can talk about it quite openly. So that was the project. All my papers on ish but different um, and moved into different areas and done some research methods stuff. But now the second book is back about this. It's the final kind of, like, trying to pull it all together. But this, my, my kind of, once I establish why this stuff is so exciting and all that sort of stuff, I want that then to contribute to the to the debates in, in a more meaningful way around why we then do stupid stuff. Like, why I kept going when I was having brain problems, when I had concussions, when I couldn't lay down memories very well, when I forgot what a jacket potato was. Um, and... Wait, wait, when you forgot what, what was? Oh, a jacket potato. So a, a, a potato that you bake in the oven. We call it a jacket oh, okay. potato. Sorry. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought that was like a celebrity figure or something <laughs> that I didn't know about. <laughs> I forget. I forget that there's these kind of like cross-Atlantic issues. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and and I had like headaches two weeks on the trot, right? Yeah. Like, And I kept going. And it's because I loved it. So there was no money for me. I've never been like, although, you know, you could look at me and be like, yeah, you know, masculinity would explain it all. It really isn't for me. It never has been. I never really yeah. was like, boxing's part of my identity. It was never that. It was because I loved it. Yeah. So, but that literally was part of why I was getting concussions. And I think that tells a story about why a lot of athletes do it, especially a lot of my students. Yeah. 
right? My students don't do it because they're going to get paid. My students get concussions all the time because they fucking love it. So I want to be able to kind of really do a number on that. And what, sorry, so just pull the book together. What's not done well enough in the sociology of sport, as far as I can see it, is a real good understanding of the emotions. There's quite a lot of sport in the emotions, but I don't. I think most of it's deficient. I don't think it engages with mainstream sociology emotions enough. And then there's this intersubjectivity contribution, which I think I can use to really speak to stuff. Although it's quite complicated, I, I, I have a way. Right, let's let's talk about that. Let's okay. say, let's actually save the baggage question because we've we've talked about intersubjectivity yeah. so much without actually talking about it. And then this is one of the key concepts or ways that you were inspired by Crossley's work, right? So what do, you, what do you mean by this concept, and why is it so useful in trying to understand the experience of people in the boxing gym, the, the joys that people have, the way they're drawn to these activities? Why is intersubjectivity a useful concept for that? Well, let's even just take it away from the gym, because it's not about that. that. That's the kind of end point. It's about okay. the, the fundamental basis of society, as Crossley calls it, the fabric of social becoming. It's the fabric of the world, which which um, which we exist with it. So in a simple in this kind of simplest sense possible, intersubjectivity is when we can speak to each other and get ideas across and just get them. And and that's in language, obviously, which is a social institution, right? Exact language precedes us, we're not born into it, we have to learn it. It's there before us, it will be there afterwards. But also in uh, gestures, embodied communication and emotions, all of that way that we communicate. And actually, if you think about it, language is one of the kind of smallest segments of the way that we communicate with our with our closest friends and, and loved ones. And I want to grab I want to grasp that. So it's it's also like a methodological issue for me. I, I want to be able to really get to know. So I want to be able to really capture the people that I know really well. And words fail me for that. Words have always failed me. This is part of why I write about how much I struggled with words when I was younger. I don't trust words. I can't spell them. Like when I, I hear people say things, I don't believe them until I see their actions. Like words are, I think I call them a bit capricious. And I'm not into them at all. I want to see actions. I want to hear what people do. And intersubjectivity helps me get that. Words are important, they're a key part of it. But it's this 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 understanding that we have between each other where I can start to get to know a bit about what you're thinking. And I, and I, and you can get to kind of pick it up from me. And 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 the example I always give is if you were to go on a kind of a, a TV contest, they're like, right, you're gonna have ten questions. And it's about a person in the world, and we're gonna ask you. 10 questions about this person who is the person and it's the person you have the best um intersubjective understanding of the person you can read really really well usually your partner maybe maybe your parents maybe your best friend whatever and in the book i talk about developing this through the um immersive research being immersed with people why i don't use ethnographies because i i put a lot of effort into the idea of being immersed with people another methodological issue which I've talked about elsewhere, actually, other podcasts, sociology show podcasts, I talk about that in more detail, so we don't have to get into that. But also developing the idea of intimate familiarity. So this intimate familiarity that we have with these people that we know so well is the methodological point. You're intimate with them, spend time with them, they're trusting, and they're familiar, you know, like you like, you know, your family, you know, kind of metaphorically, but also literally. Um, and that, that is how we develop this kind of intersubjective 
position. I get what you're saying and you get what I'm saying. You also know that I probably get what you're saying. And we get it. We're like, okay, I'm getting it. And we can never be sure, right? Never, never can I know 100% if the person's faking, but mostly I do. That is a, a, a way of kind of colloquially talking about intersubjectivity, I think. What's the connection between the body and intersubjectivity? Are they necessarily linked? So, yes, the body is, is and we are, I, I, this isn't really how he states it, which is one of the problems I have with him. We are intersubjective beings. I think he maybe says it one or two times. I want him to be harder with it. I want him to say we're biologically, sociologically, psychologically intersubjective. We exist in the inter. There is no me outside of the interactions with other people. Um, and he doesn't quite go far enough and make that point. And I want to make that point, which will leave me with my head above the parapet to be whacked at, which is one of the things that I don't think Crossley does enough. He's so well read and he's so good, but he's so humble. He doesn't put himself out there enough, perhaps. Maybe he'd completely disagree with me. Um, whereas I'm not that person, right? I'm happy to be wrong and I'm happy. He's probably happy to be wrong, but I'm, be, I'm happy to be get knocked down a bit as well. No problem with that. It's happened enough in my life that I don't mind because I just pick myself back up again. So I want to push it and I want to kind of make this kind of big claim about dedicatedly studying as intersubjective beings. Baby can't exist out of its relationship with others. It just doesn't, we, we don't function as a human species socially you, the examples of people who don't rely on others who aren't independent interdependent with people and a kind of a lazian term interdependence are very few and far between and they're pariahs you know the hermits who never come down from the mountains but actually they still do come down from the mountains a lot of the time they still need to get their gun they still need to get their rifle the, the, for the bullets which is made by someone in whenever so even the kind of the people who are at the extreme set end of it, who are like these ice, trying to be isolated beings, just don't really exist in any real sense. So, I don't know if I've answered the question there, but that that's a part no, of get, Crossley again. Yeah, you're getting a and the yeah, body. And I'm, the, I'm, I'm sorry, it's the body bit. The body is that central part of it. But we tend to think of the body as biological. We tend to think it as an isolated biological unit. In like, maybe when we do when we're at school, we don't do sociology here at school especially the schools that I went to. So people tend to think about the body as a biological unit and then the world as a geographical unit and never the two will meet. But actually that's nonsense. Like the, the body fundamentally exists with each other in these interactions, interspaces, um, and we have intersubjective knowledge. My, my knowledge is based on an already built-up, pre-existing set of knowledge. So we can communicate today because we know what these words mean. That's inter. It, it is between us. So you said that there that we're uh, socially or sociologically intersubjective. You said that we're psychologically intersubjective, but you also said biologically yeah. intersubjective. And I'm curious if you could just explain what that means, because I think the first two pretty easy to convince people of, right? But what the third one I think is the more not the more interesting, but for me, the most interesting, right? Yeah. Um, so what do, what do you mean by that? Okay, so I kind of touched on it a bit, but let, let's go to the, the, the very root of it. So we, we're, we're born of another body, right? So we're already into, we're already connected to, um, you know, we, we're doing fantastic things with science, but we still only have the recreation of babies in the very simple sense that we've always had the recreation of babies. And our... Our evol one of our evolutionary kind of developments was 
the these massive brains and our um, inability to look after ourselves when we're when we're born, which requires a, a mother at least, probably a, a tribe when we first started, and to this day still. If we haven't got the natural mother, a mother of some sort, someone to do that sort of side of things, and other people around us. So in a very kind of real biological sense, babies do not exist without other people, right? And you, you could you can take it, you know, take an example from the animal kingdom. You know, some animals give them a couple of minutes, hours, days, maybe seconds, and they're just away. So that's not us. But then further than that. Our upbringing, our ability to communicate, requires pre-existing fonts of no, pre-existing stocks of knowledge. I, the, even the self, even the notion of a self, requires me to recognise another, the other, my mother, <laughs> my friends. Oh, that that person's playing that role. That means they could see me as that role. I. That means I'm a person. Okay, I'm myself. So even this kind of isolated being is coded by the language of intersubjectivity. It's it's shaped by it, you know, the recognition of the other, this person that's out there, the interactions between us are required for the for the self to exist. All of that, the way that we think internally is based on language which is shared. So at all stages, the subject is, un, is intersubjective at all stages. And we get scared of making those claims, right? You know, my, my students, like, they ever put, like, in all, at, at all the time or all of these athletes said or all men do this. I'm like, no, 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 hold it down. C c calm down. Most men, most men do this, right? <laughs> some, yeah. Yeah, like some, yeah, the majority of even. Like, there's evidence to suggest, yeah. but, like, I want to be able, when we know what we've got, to be able to put that down as a flag in the sand. And I think with this stuff, like... I, there's, there's a convincing argument there to be made that we don't exist out of the inter and therefore we're into subjective beings and our life we, we, we're we're biologically preordained to interact and we don't like it right sometimes we don't want to go to the pub or we don't want to but still we search it out and it's still there and we 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 even went the way we act Right, I'm taking my cues from you. You're taking cues back from me. I'm not just like divorced from what you're saying. Like it's it's an interaction all the time, and I know that's just an example from a conversation. But that's life. That's all the time. Everything is coded by these things that we're doing in with each other. The things that I say, the things that I think, the emotions that I feel. None of them are isolated. So why do we keep holding on to that kind of isolation? And we keep psychology, for example, keep thinking we can. We can measure these things as isolated units in the brain. It's like, oh, we can't. We've got to, got to commit to it. And I actually think it's easy for me to pick fault at psychology, right? They're not gonna, probably not going to listen to stuff that I talk about. So it's not fair. But within sociology, I think we still have that problem, especially within research methods, where people are talking about this person said that, therefore they thought that. Did they? Like, is it more than that? Is there an intersubjective process that's made someone say that? Can we explore the process? And does that give us better science? I would argue, yeah. And that's the con that's the commitment to thinking into subjectivity first, rather than the subjective knowledge first. Okay, so this this is a little bit of a jump, but returning to something that you brought up earlier, how can this understanding of the inner subjective help us appreciate or 
be able to theorize or just understand the joy of something like getting hit in the face and hitting another person in the face. Okay, great. So, because that was that that was one of the the central yeah. right. That's like the area that we're trying to understand that hasn't been properly theorized yet or properly explained. Yeah. So wh- why is it why is it fun to get punched in the nose? Okay, so I still have a lot of work to do on this, but what I think okay. it's going to be is that what Crossley doesn't do sufficiently is, as I've already said, like really put it out there that we've got to like almost overcommit. I'm going to write this book and overcommit to it so that then people can have a go back at me and we get the conversation going. So I'm going to overcommit to it, as I already have done to some degree. But the second thing that he doesn't do is capture, although he knows about it, he writes about the emotions, he doesn't capture it as part of the intersubjective experience enough. In the body book, he talks about the emotions loads and it's great and it like the... When, you, when you're talking about the body, you have to theorise the emotions, and they're just like, they're both sides of the same coin, and it's so good. But in this book, he doesn't do it enough. And especially when we're talking about intersubjective understanding of each other, communication. I think we communicate through emotion and gesture more than we do language in a lot of instances. Not here, like this is a clearly a wordy conversation. In most of life, it's like little movements here and there. And when we get into the ring... That's where this really jumps out at you. When you're sparring with someone, and th- this is this is touched on in mine and Alex's new paper about consent. So if anyone goes to my website, which I'm sure you mentioned at the start and end, or start or end or whatever, there's a paper on there about consent in sport. It's about communicating consent. And actually, I've we've written that paper over decades, <laughs> a decade. And on the last rewrite, I was close enough to getting my arguments all together to future-proof that paper for the argument I'm going to make in the next book. So it's set up in that paper in a few places, and it's about this sort of embodied communication, which, when you've done sparring, and insert anything you've done, you can even think about sex even. Sex is a good example for this, when you're having sex with someone that you care for especially. Um, The communication that goes on there without any words... That's in subjective understanding. It's not spoken. How do I get data on that for my book? <laughs> it's really fucking hard. Like, I can do it because we can talk afterwards and we could stop after we've had sex sparring and we could go, so how was that for you? We could do that. We could do that with sparring quite easily. A bit awkward if you do that with sex, although probably a mature relationship does. A bit uh, awkward if you do that with sparring. <laughs> yeah, but in that moment, that kind of shared joy, right? And we're talking about two burly blokes, right, for people who, don't know what I look like. I've got a stupid moustache and tattoos all over my face. I'm quite big. Dudes that look like me, like we, we're not so open about sharing joyful moments together, right? Maybe the new generation, but I'm 40, so I'm still, I'm still old school. Um, but we do share joy. This is one of the things that I always had a problem with, with kind of like feminist readings of men not communicating. Yes, we don't talk to each other about our emotions a lot, but we share our emotions all the time. With my friends, I always share my emotions. We just don't talk about it in the same way. And that can be unhealthy, I get that, but it doesn't mean to say it's not happening. So methodologically, that allows me to get into undersubject, sorry, intersubjectivity allows me to methodologically get into that. And I've been getting into that before I knew that word. It's like embodied understanding intersubjectivity has helped me really understand that methodologically and now theorize it as a bigger part of society so it helps me understand okay, so the so the theory is helping you with the with the method is it also part of the explanation of the joy yes 
is the joy so, is the joy in the communication between two bodies? Is that no? The, is that part of the joy, or that's or it's, this is the method to get at that thing? Yeah, I think you're right. There is actually some joy in us both knowing, like I got you, you got me. Like I'm being yeah. a little bit simplistic with it, but there will be joy in sharing that knowledge that you're both enjoying it, enjoying each other's joy. But the the optimum here, the optimum term is joy, emotion. And what I'm saying is that Crossley didn't fit that in enough. I, I didn't pull that point yeah. through, did I? Crossley didn't put the emotions into the intersubjectivity book well enough. I I'm going to add see. that in, which will make intersubjectivity more of a robust theory, I think. <laughs> I like to think. And then that will help me explain some of the joy. But more importantly, that speaks back to why intersubjectivity, once reconsidered and developed, especially through the lens of emotion, emotionality, is a more robust social theory, which I'm going to argue, we may come on to, helps me get rid of some baggage. I should say, <laughs> I've got two things. One, right after this, we're going we're gonna to actually work through some of Crossley's writing in a, a companion podcast, which will be kind of fun. And that deals specifically even more with how he's theorizing intersubjectivity. So we'll return to that. But as a way of ending this conversation, which you led into so perfectly, what is this idea of baggage, right? Because you're, you're saying that this project you're going to engage in is going to remove some of the baggage. One of your biggest frustrations with social theory is all the baggage that's attached. What, is, what does that mean beyond just the general way that we always use the term? What's the phrase? I think it might have been Elias. I can't remember. Damn, it's in the book. I, it's the worst memory in the world. That's why I write books, so that it's already there. Yeah. <laughs> Sociology has the greatest number of concepts and the least knowledge, or something like that. We just have this proliferation of, of, of concepts. And when I read this stuff, and again, I say it in the book, actually, when I first started studying sociology, I was like, all right, so who's pulling all this shit together? Because you're all saying the same stuff. Figuration, field, it's not the same, but close to discourse. Like, there's these you know, social systems, networks, all right, yeah, get it. Um, habitus, embodiment, oh, you're all saying, okay, capital. There's these, like, these theories are very, very similar. And I would argue, and have argued only on Twitter, not not formally, because I'm not well-read enough to make this in an article, um, but that social theory is more similar than it is different, especially social theory. It's more, sorry, sociology. It's more similar than it is different. And most people who say a, a, a new thing, it's like, yeah, that's, that's kind of been said before by C. Wright Mills or Bloomer or such and such or Weber or whoever. And I, if we just take, take a minute, uh, just take a leaf out of um, f the, um, I was going to say philosophers, physics. And the, and the statement that you're making can anger people, right? Yeah, people good. get very upset when they hear, like, yeah. this, is, this is one of those areas when you say, hey, you using X theorist, Y theorist also does that, even if they're using different terminology. Yeah. But no that, one says it. I don't know why no one says yeah. it. Because, I'm, again, I, one of my strengths is my, one of my biggest weaknesses. I don't have that formal background in social theory. I never learned social theory 101, like, right, today we're doing X, then we're going on to Y, and we're going to go from Faber to Tolcott Parsons and all that sort of stuff. So I come to that pragmatically. I don't care about any of that nonsense. I care about, is this going to help me understand the social world better? And care for your, your history, except for does the history help me understand the theory better to make you a better theorist? So go to physics. What do physics do? They, they have a theory from Newton, and it's a decent theory. It predicts gravity quite well. And then they realise that they can get a better theory, which reduces some of the baggage. So they stop using Newtonian physics, and they go to Einstein's. Or they theorise 
um, magnetism and electricity separately. And then they realise they're both part of the same phenomena. And they don't be like, all right, let's keep those two bits of baggage. We'll have electromagnetism. That's science. Try not to swear so much. That's science. That's what we do. And a lot of people say, oh, but social theory is different. Yeah, okay, it can be. And, and if you if you want to do it in a way which is about adding more and more layers of concepts, I think you can make an argument for that. I don't agree with that argument, and this is how I want to do it, which is we reduce the baggage, and where there's theories that are overlapping, we go, they all overlap. Let's condense that into something which is far easier for people to read, which is what Crossley's done. And Crossley has gone, look, all these people are saying something similar. You've got to do a lot of work to do it. You've got to do a lot of work to figure it out. I've done it for you. He's like, I, I, leave me to read Husserl. Leave me to read Sartre. Leave me to go back to Weber and X, Y, Z. Oh, he doesn't mention Weber. Obviously, he's read him. And it's like, oh, thanks, Nick. You've, you've highlighted how all these people are basically not saying the same thing, but certainly overlapping on big key ideas. Thanks for that. I'm going to use that. I'm still going to read those ideas. I'm going to put my, my scholarly efforts where they need to be put, as we already discussed. Why do you read those ideas? Isn't that the baggage? But I need to understand it to get where Cross is coming from. I Cross see. is not okay. perfect. So it's, it's reading from a pragmatic purpose. Yeah. It's, not to, we, it's not to romanticize. It's not to get caught up in, those, in, the, in the original text, but just to make sure you understand how Crossley's understanding it and make sure you interpret it the same way so you can build your ideas. Yeah, and go, but in physics, in physics, you don't have to go yeah, back you, and do, do that. But you do. I think you do. And I think that um, Feynman has a great statement about physics. He says that people think physics, the contemporary world of physics, is what he means. It's complicated. It's like it's not... You're just coming in at the top. If you followed physics from the easy, from the start point, from whoever, Copernicus, you'd be like, all right, I get all of this because you've got 2,000 years of understanding it. And that's what he did. He was relatively, at least initially, self-taught on a lot of maths and a lot of physics. So he gets it, and it's like he just follows the journey. And I think we all still have to do that. We have to know, to understand where we are, we've got to know where we come from. So I think we have to do that and put that work in. But along the way, you're dropping the baggage. We don't, we don't, we we learn Newton so that we can understand it and where we've progressed into. But we don't carry on using Newton. So that would be how I'm getting rid of the baggage. W want to now? This is to be seen, right? Can I do this? I don't know because one of the problems I've got is when I've kind of proposed these ideas, I've still, still somehow got, and I think I can get rid of it, but I've still got a kind of agency structure thing, which is what I want to try and get rid of. Which a lot of people have said they've already got rid of. And I don't agree with it. So to be confirmed whether this is even possible, but even if it's not possible, because you could argue that's never possible in, in various ways, I know I can shed I know I can shed some stuff and I know I can lighten up certain things with what I'm trying to do. So even if it fails, I'm I'm thinking of shooting for the stars here. If I get to the moon, I'm gonna be well happy. Um and it's you can already see by the way I'm talking about it, I'm, I'm into this. It gets me up every day and I love it and I nerd out about it and I've been like looking forward to this conversation because I've not been able to talk about this to this level with anyone else because who, who can I speak to about yeah. it? Yeah, who's going to listen to you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> don't if you just grab a stranger. Yeah. So, so I, don't, I don't, almost I don't really care if I don't get there. Like I know that the, what yeah. I'm doing will have some point. If I can't pull together the final bits of theory, it doesn't matter because I'll have really explained Something about society, something about the human condition, something about boxing, enjoyment, and then concussion. So there's some real pragmatic stuff there that comes along the way. Um, that's my dog waking up. So, yeah, that's the baggage thing. And that goes back to my kind of real 
real bugbear with social theory, the way people use it. Let me ask, I said that would be the last question before we go over to actually reading some of the text, but I do have one more question, which I'm curious about. How often, I don't even know how to ask this question, actually. I'm curious, but uh, how often do you encounter new areas of theory that seem to be doing something similar to what you're excited about, but you just don't have time to engage with it? And, or maybe there's something about it that's off-putting. And, and one of the, the reason I'm specifically asking that is, in recent years, there's been a rise of, for instance, something like affect theory or new materialism or these areas of theory that seem like they're overlapping a bit with the type of stuff you're studying, the way you're trying to get rid of some of those other concepts. But you've been working on this project and suddenly there's this new group of scholars just from the sake of having time and saying, well, I already have this project I'm working on. How do you know when to, when to engage, when not to engage? Yeah, great question. And a, f- and a fear, right, that we all have, right? Um, impossible to not have that. Yeah, so my kind of pragmatic way through this is the start point is still most people are saying the same thing in different ways. And I don't think someone is going to come across and fundamentally change anything. I don't think I am. I'm going to reduce, hopefully reduce things down. I'm not saying I'm changing the world at all. I don't think any of those people that you mentioned will be changing the world of social theory. However, their contributions, I think, once I've done my work, I can explore and consider, but I need to get my job done. I need, as I say in the book and say everywhere on Twitter, you need to get shit done. I've read so much and so much I've loved it, but I've, I've, got, I've got enough. The ideas are sorted in my head. I can't read anymore. Um, I actually talk about this on the, I think it's, uh, it's on the membership side of my website, where I've like, what is enough reading? And you have to stop. You have to get a job done. And once the ideas have consolidated enough, that the dots are there, you have to start connecting them up. So I'm not going to read any of that stuff. What I am going to do is get this done, then revisit the stuff that I've got a massive list of that I haven't read yet, read that, add the bits in, because I think most of it will align with support, refine what I'm saying. Nothing's going to fundamentally undercut what I'm saying. I've been doing this long enough to know that I'm onto something. And then once it's there and it's close enough to send out to people, that's where the extra stuff will come in. And if it's like, you've really got to read this, I'll go and read it and I'll do a job on it. Um, the one thing that I know I'm going to have to, I'm going to get told to look at is Lacan and um, Desire. Like that is going to come in. I don't know what that is. I know it's going to be important. I've read a bit. Um, and I'm like, yeah, I kind of see and I kind of get it, but um, I'm, I'm not. I'm going to do it after I'm going to get this done because otherwise as well um, one paralysis by analysis just not doing it and two I want to have something of my own to this like I've got something here I know I have and if something someone else has completely said it fine you know it is what it is I've wasted my time but I, I can't do everything and I can't grab everything and fit it in I'm just not good enough none of us are so I think there's a pragma- pragmatic element to that where if you are diligent and you've done your work and you've put the grind in you've just got to move forward and you, you've got to go, I'm going to get this done. I'm going to get it as good as I can. And then when people look at it and hopefully I'll send you a copy of it and you can tell me, yeah, you've got to read new materialism, Chris. And I'll be like, shit. And then I'll go and do it and I'll add it yeah. in where I can and, and we'll hope for the best. Well, I was hoping you could tell me if I need to read more of the stuff. So. <laughs> we're both. <laughs> no, I mean, I, 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 both. I, I'm so, I'm so dedicated to the stuff that I do that I'm completely undedicated to the stuff that I don't do. Like, I, I don't, I, yeah, I, I don't want to sound too flippant. Yeah. I don't care about that stuff. I literally don't care about it. And someone could say, but you've got to. Yeah, and I will eventually when I need to. 
but at the minute I've got stuff to do here. I'm like, I've got to focus. Uh, you know, I, I said to somebody the other day, I've got a merciless focus, right? I know exactly what I'm going to do. It's like the last few years really like solidified exactly what I'm doing and where I'm going. It's my journey. It's got nothing to do with the university. It's got nothing to do with what we call ref over here, where we kind of assess our research and all that nonsense. Or mm. f all of that. I've got exactly what I'm doing, and, and, and I know it's going to be good. I'm good enough to know it's going to be good. Is it going to be perfect? Of course not. Could it be better? Of course it can. But I need to get it done. Then at that point, we can have those conversations a bit more. I think that's a that's a pretty inspiring way to end this ep- this part of the podcast. So why don't we why don't we call this one? Thank you for sharing these ideas, working through them. Um, I'm excited to see what you do. So we'll have to talk more as you <laughs> cool. work through the project. Thanks for that. But then let's, uh, and then for people listening, um, let's we're going to record a companion podcast. We're just going to work through just probably just a few paragraphs to see what we can get from looking at some across these ideas and the original text. Good stuff, man. Really appreciate it. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing theme music, SUNY Brockport for providing financial support, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, Thank you for giving theory a chance.